First John chapter two, beginning in verse 15, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. In this powerful epistle, John has written about the Savior in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he's going to once again redirect our attention to the Savior. He's going to talk about both the Savior and surety, or we might even think of assurance in chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. And again later in verses 28 and 29. But now John is going to be writing about the world's sinful society. Later, John will bring up the subject of Satan in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Once again, I want to remind you of the theme of the book. Remember that it is fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And remember, fellowship with God comes from having a right relationship with Jesus. And Fellowship with each other involves having a right relationship with each other. John gives a series of tests. Remember the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of truth. Remember, we were even given a test about growth. And so as we follow the test, do we hear God's word and obey it? Do, the relational test, do we really love God and love each other? And then the test of truth, do we care about the truth? And so John will remind everyone reading the epistle that in order to love God and love each other, there are certain things that you have to refrain from doing, including loving the world. John is going to say that whoever loves this world's system can't really love God. And so even as you read these words, you might be asking yourself, well, what does John mean by the world? And clearly John doesn't mean the physical creation. He's not talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. I know some of you are old enough to remember. He's not talking about that because the reason why we know that is that the physical creation that God created, God declared it good. He says that the physical creation reveals the glory of God and the majesty of God in Psalm 8 and Psalm 24, 1. And it can't be speaking of the world of human beings because even a child who's ever attended a Sunday school class is bound to have learned the passage of scripture in John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the world of human beings, the lost world, fallen human beings in need of a savior. 
the world that he's talking about is the world that stands in opposition to God and the things of God and the gospel of God. When John uses the word world, he's using a very specific word, word which means this world's system, if you will. This world is deeply informed by Satan. This world hates God. This world hates God's son. This world hates God's message of salvation. We've already learned believers love the Lord. Remember verse 5, whoever, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And so remember, we love the Lord, and then we love God's people. Look at verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light. We love the Lord. We love God's people. We reject this world and its system. We Christians adopt a language that often sounds foreign to the person who's not a Christian. People will get around Christians and they'll go, they use strange words and strange sayings. Um, we, we speak of worldliness and worldly Christians. And you'll hear people talking and imagine you're an outsider and you're listening to this conversation and you go, what are you talking about worldly? What, are, what in the world does that mean? And of course, when Christians are talking about it, they're talking about people who have an unhealthy preoccupation, affection for, and love for this world system. Billy Sunday used to say, it makes no more sense to talk about a worldly Christian than it does to talk about a heavenly devil. We can and should be suspicious of a person who claims Christ, but who lives and loves and acts as if this world's system is their friend. You know, in India, some of our brothers and sisters think that, in, that being carnal or being worldly is growing a mustache. I remember the last time I was there, there was this great big debate among the Indian believers that if people have a, a mustache, then that must mean that they're sold out to the world. In Finland, it's considered carnal or worldly to whistle. In our own culture, people might think of Christians with tattoos or piercings or body augmentation. We tend to think about worldliness as something that you do rather than something that you are. And so John is going to ask us to rearrange our thinking because we, again, we tend to think of worldliness as something that you do. There was an old saying that used to go, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. But John is going to invite you to go way deeper. Worldliness is something that is invisible and internal. Worldliness begins with infatuation and worldly wisdom with worldly promises. Worldliness is a willingness to embrace the notion. 
Not simply that there may or may not be a God, but it could be even for the Christian to live their life as if there really is no God when they're walking outside in that world, when, they're, when you're walking through the shopping uh, malls or as you're going to a particular movie theater or you're watching a particular concert and then all of a sudden you begin to live your life as if God isn't really there or that God doesn't really care. That's really part of what worldliness is. Erwin Lutzer, who's the pastor of Moody Church, writes, Worldliness is excluding God from our lives and therefore consciously or unconsciously accepting the values of a man-centered society because the truth is that once you abandon the Bible's values and the biblical revelation about what constitutes right and wrong, that doesn't mean that you have no value whatsoever. And so remember John's tests. The test of obedience, the test of love, the test of truth, the test of growth. And now the test of do you love this world? And I want you to think about it because for some of you, these tests make you feel uncomfortable. But that's not the purpose of the test. That was never the purpose. That was never the function. It was always meant to promote confidence in Christ and assurance of our mutual salvation. And so it begins with the warning, beware of this world's system. And so he says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. That word love appears 36 times in this one tiny epistle in five chapters. We're told to love God. We're told to love the brethren. We are, we've talked about the loves that are allowed. And now John's going to bring up the subject of forbidden love. The things that you're not allowed to love. And by the way, like I said, the word translated world is cosmos. You know that word. If you've ever heard the term cosmic, if you've ever heard the term cosmopolitan, it comes from that word. We speak of the world and here the verb means to order or to arrange in a proper condition. We speak of the world of sports or the world of fashion. We speak of the Muslim world. We speak of the Christian world. We speak of the liberal world. We speak of the conservative world. Vincent offers this definition. He says, quote, the sum total of human life in the ordered world, considered apart from, alienated from, hostile to God, and the earthly things which seduce us from God. And that's exactly right. 
It's not just simply the ordered and orchestrated social, political, or even religious constructs that exist in society. It's this concerted effort to distance yourself from God. So here John means the arrangement or the system that's opposed to God. Again, Kenneth Weiss writes, Satan is the head. His fallen angels and demons are his emissaries. And the unsaved of the human race are his subjects. Together with those purposes, pursuits, pleasures, practices, and places where God is not wanted. And that's the exact right way of thinking about it. Weiss has hit the proverbial nail on the head. The world that he's talking about, love not the world or the things that are in the world, he's talking about that place where God isn't welcome and the Christ isn't welcome and the gospel isn't welcome and forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy are not welcome. For some of you, you know that's in somebody's heart that you know. Others of you might be thinking of the university system. You might be thinking even of our public education system. Weist writes, much in this world system is religious, cultured, refined, intellectual, but it is anti-God and anti-Christ. And he's right. We, on the other hand, are Christians. We are men and women who must be willing to invite Christ and God and the things of God into our lives, into our home, into our heart, into everything that we do. Paul R. Van Gorder writes in his book, In the Family, he writes, quote, As believers, we are a part of a supernatural system of which the Father is the source and Christ is the center. But another system appeals to the old nature. It's the world system. You and I must live in it. You and I must find our occupation in it, yet have nothing to do with it. The world so violently opposed to Christ is unable, I should say, the world so violently opposed to Christ is able to attract the heart and entice us in the way of darkness. And so the Christian's goal, if you will, or dilemma, if you will, has always been, how do I live in this world? but not be of this world. How do we do that? What does John mean by the things in this world? And actually, the things that he means by it are all of the things that are listed in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Clearly, he doesn't mean, like I said, the world of nature or even the world of men. He's not talking about people in this context. And so, he's speaking of something else. People are blinded by Satan. 
the people who live in this world and embrace this world and love this world, the reason why they do all of those things is because this is the only world that they've ever known. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul talks about whose minds the gods, small g of this age, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine in them. So for each and every one of you who have ever said to your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, a neighbor, a friend, anyone that you've ever known and, and you've said to them, how come you don't get it? How come you don't understand that God loves you? How come you don't get this? How, how can you not see that there's something broken and wicked and weird in the world in which you're living in? The Bible's answer is because their eyes are blinded. Their eyes have been blinded. Note what John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Vincent comments that that expression, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, most specifically, is not in him. He writes... This means more than that he does not love God. Rather that the love of God does not dwell in him. Another way that Vincent puts it is the love of God isn't the ruling principle of that person's life. So it's possible for a person living carnally and wickedly and worldly. You, if you say to them, do you love God? Almost nine times out of ten, they'll say, of course I love God. Of course I love him. Then how do you explain your life? And I think that the right answer is, in their way of thinking, in their way of thinking, they haven't come to that place in their life where they begin to understand that the governing principle, the ruling principle, the primary motivation of their life isn't a love of God. And that's the point that John is making in the text. The genuine Christian is marked by his or her love for the Lord. And now we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he says, this is how they're going to know that you are my disciples, by your love for each other. So the genuine Christian is marked by love of the Lord, love for the brethren. And the non-Christian is marked by his or her love of this world and the things that are in this world, this world system, the system that stands firm in opposition to God, against Christ, against the gospel. So the Lord allows Satan in part to rule this world through the minds of those who continue to be in rebellion against God. And so he moves to the wickedness in this world system. Look at verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world. Now remember, when you're reading that word world, you read that system which stands in opposition to the person of God, the person of Christ, 
the gospel, the word of God, the will of God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Do you understand what John is doing? He's giving you a blueprint for the way in which the world operates. How does the world operate? What methods does the world employ to redirect a person's attention, redirect a person's affection, redirect their commitment away from God, away from Christ, away from faith, away from the Bible? The world simply begins by offering a truce. Peace. You hear the song come on the radio. Why can't we be friends? 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 And it's attractive. You're going, yeah. Why can't we be friends? In James chapter 4, verse 4, James writes, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know this as children. Do you remember that friend that you had when you were growing up? And then somebody said to you, I can't be your friend anymore. And you said, why can't you be my friend? And they said, because I hate your other friend's guts. I hate their guts. And if you like them, you can't like me. You can't be their friend and my friend at the same time. And rightly you said, I don't, I don't understand that. Why can't we be friends? And God is basically saying this. You can't be friends with a system that is committed to hating, antagonizing, alienating, aggravating, undermining the plan of God, the word of God, the gospel of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Now we have received... Not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Both John the Apostle and Paul the Apostle remind you and I, you've been given a new life. You've been given a new spirit. You've been given a new hope. The world is corrupt. The world is perverted. The world is opposed to God. The world system is de designed to keep you away from God and then rob you of the blessings of God that God has in Christ for us. And the appeal of the world hasn't changed down through the course of human history. In the book of Genesis, you'll remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve is exposed to the same three solicitations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You'll remember in the book of Genesis, it says Eve saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She experienced that the tree was 
pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. She also saw that it was a tree to be desired, to make one wise. That's the pride of life. Jesus himself was confronted with the same series of tests in the Judean wilderness by Satan himself. The modus operandi or the method has never really changed. And so, John says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. The word lust, by the way, here means a strong craving. What seems like an insatiable desire. The reason why all of this is going to become very, very important to you as a Christian is this. He's speaking about something that's on the inside of you, that's motivating you, that's creating a mechanism inside of you that wants to go in a particular direction. So what does he mean by the flesh? And by the way, it's very difficult to define. It's the desire to satisfy yourself at God's expense. Let me repeat that. The lust of the flesh is the desire to satisfy yourself at God's expense. In order to understand what I'm talking about, I have to also tell you what the flesh is. Again, the flesh isn't the physical muscle and bone and nerves that constitutes your body. When no one else is looking, just pinch yourself real quick in, you know, some, in an appropriate way. Pinch yourself. That's not your flesh. It isn't just simply your physical body. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. I'm going to repeat that. Your flesh is everything that you are. You mean even the good things? Yes. Even the noble things? Yes. Even the physical capacities for athleticism? Yes. Even brilliant intellectual reasoning? Yes. Everything, everything, everything that you are apart from Christ. Now, the definition again, the desire to satisfy yourself at Christ's expense. It's the satisfaction of normal desires in a way that's forbidden by God. Erwin Lutzer, again, the pastor of Moody Church writes, worldliness is not only doing what is forbidden, but also wishing it were possible to do it. One of its distinctives is mental slavery to illegitimate pleasures. Worldliness twists values by rearranging their price tags, unquote. And I like that. I like that, that, that imagery. Imagine you go into a store and you see a, you see a product and it's $100 and you see someone switch out the ticket to, 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 to $50. By the way... If a person takes a $100 item and puts a $50 price tag on it, is that person stealing? Yes, they are. 
our flesh deals with physical appetites. And so here, I think it means anything that appeals to our fallen nature. In the Bible, our flesh isn't, again, simply the physical part of us. It's everything that we are, our mind, our emotions, our will, everything apart from Christ. It's our unregenerate nature. It's the thing, it's the thing that apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from the gospel makes us blind to the truth. Our flesh is the physical nature that we receive at our physical birth. Our spiritual nature is the nature that we receive when we're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we've confessed our sin and we turn from our sin and we receive Christ as our Savior. Peter wrote that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we become partakers of a new nature, a divine nature, he calls it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. So we're Christians who have two natures. One is divine. One is fallen. Our desires aren't bad or evil in and of themselves. It's not wrong to be hungry. It's not wrong to be thirsty. It's not wrong to be weary. It's not wrong to be lonely. But can you satisfy your thirst in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, by getting drunk. By getting drunk. Is it wrong to want to eat? No. But you can, can you eat in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, it's called gluttony. Is it wrong to be lonely? No. But can you try and satisfy that loneliness in a way that clearly is not honoring, pleasing, honoring to God? You see, and that becomes the key issue. Am I satisfying these things in a way that's honoring to God or that is dishonoring to God? And now we begin to understand. That's how the world operates. The world will constantly invite you to satisfy yourself in a way that either honors or dishonors God. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? And so, the world invites you to satisfy normal desires in a way that would displease God or that is prohibited by God or that is forbidden by God. I just want to be loved. I just want to have someone care about me. I just, are you trying to tell me that God doesn't want me to love someone? That's not what I'm saying and that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that there is a way to satisfy your heart and your soul and the needs that real people have in a way that's going to be honoring to God. So now we, we move to the lust of the eyes. What in the world is that? This is the sin of covetousness. I know for some of you, you might be thinking, what in the world is that? The, the word covetousness, covetousness means to desire something that you already have enough of. This is 
what we might think of as the sin of vision. Hasn't anyone ever said to you, we we want what we want. We want what we can see. Augustine wrote of this passage, this is that which works in spectacles, in theaters, in amusements, in sacraments of the devil, in magical arts, in witchcraft, none other than curiosity, unquote. He wrote that in the fourth century AD. This is that which tantalizes the eyes. This is the solicitation that is brought on the billboard, that's brought in the magazine, that's brought in the commercial. We might think of this as the sin of craving and accumulation. This is, again, the sin of wanting more and more and more of what you already have enough of. I already told you that when I get a little bit out of control, my wife makes me watch an episode of Hoarders. And then I pack up not one, not two, but ten boxes of books and take them away to Christian used books. Yeah, it is my drug of choice. And this is the sin of craving and accumulating. Eve wanted the fruit because it was pleasing to her eye. Achan wanted the beautiful Babylonian robe. He wanted the silver and he wanted the gold in Joshua chapter 7 verse 21. David saw Bathsheba bathing under this bewitching glow of a Jerusalem night. We see and we become obsessed with what we see. And now you begin to, again, understand what John means when he says, this is the way that the world works. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and look at the end of verse 16, the pride of life. This is the sin of self-centeredness. We want others to love us as much as we love ourselves. Some have called this the proud glory of life or the braggart, or the glamour of the splendid. Some versions translate this, the pride in possessions. It's a reference, though, not simply to what you have, but an inward craving for more. I think it was not on Johnny Carson, maybe it was on Jay Leno's show, where one of the wealthiest men in all of the world um, had a huge amount of money, and and the talk show host asked him, "Um, you've got all of this money, how much do you need? And his response was remarkable. He said, just a little more. Just a little more. This is obsession. But it isn't just obsession with possession. It's obsession with boasting. It's a reference to an inward attitude. The pride of life. The word pride carries with it the sense of exaggeration. Or boasting in order to impress. 
in the physical world, it's like the puffer fish that blows herself or itself into a much larger object to impress. And if impression requires stretching the truth, so be it. John covers the sphere of common temptation, uncontrolled appetite, false values, the exaltation of self. And so how do we break our appetite for these worldly things? How do we take the journey from worldliness to godliness? And by the way, if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, that's the theme of the book. The theme of the entire book is how does a Christian begin the journey and continue the journey away from worldliness? How do we walk away from these things and we walk towards selflessness and love, loving the Lord and loving each other and loving the things that God has for us? Later, John will write in, in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, if you have your Bible, just turn a couple of quick pages to chapter 5, verse 4. It says, for whatever is born of God, that's you, if you've been born again, if you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, whoever overcomes, for whatever is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's going to talk about that there is a way to go forward and there is a way to overcome all of these kinds of things. This is the victory. Our faith our confidence, our love of Jesus. Paul reminded the Philippians that their citizenship was in heaven. In Philippians 3.20, he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we overcome this? It's by beginning to realize that we are Christians. It's by beginning to realize that this world doesn't have anything to offer us. It's by beginning to realize that our true hope, our true confidence, our true possessions already are in heaven. And the reason why this becomes so important, I want you to just think about this for just a minute. John, as he's writing to these people almost 2,000 years ago, is reminding them that the struggle isn't simply against sinful activities. We're back to what I said earlier. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. I just need to stop all of the sinful activities. That's not what John is focusing on. You'll notice that his focus isn't on what you do, it's on what you desire. It's on what you want. I think that that's very, very interesting. Because often we define worldliness as a set of behaviors that we can or can't do. But John says, I want you to change your focus just for a moment. And I want you to think about what it is that you desire. And John's description of what it means to love this world, it means cravings, desires. John draws our attention to attitudes, cravings, longings, motivations. 
And why is this important? Because the invisible world of motives and cravings often go undetected, huh? People can see you on the outside, but they can't see you on the inside. They can't follow into your head and then ask and answer the question, what's going on inside of you? You know, we can struggle to restrain from sinful activities. We can go, I don't, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. But every single moment of every single day when you wake up, you just want to drink. Or to drug. Or to satisfy that desire. And you know you can't do it. You know you can't steal. You know you can't do this. And you can't do that. And you can't do that. And then you struggle with the invisible, internal craving. It's possible to refrain from watching porn. It's possible to live in mock humility. But all the while, deep inside of your heart, all you want to do is to do it. So the real question becomes, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that problem? And by the way, the Bible has a solution for us. The, Bible, the Bible's solution isn't simply to cry out to God. It isn't just to simply pray. Although crying out to God is a good place to start and praying is a great place to continue. But the Bible's constant admonition is an encouragement for us to put off one way of thinking and, and walking and believing and put on a whole new way of thinking. It isn't good enough to stop lying. We have to start telling the truth. It isn't good enough to stop stealing. You have to start working. It isn't good enough to just simply put away the depression. You have to put on joy, unspeakable and full of glory. You have to become excited about what it means to allow the living and true God to live inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't simply renounce sinful cravings. We announce a new passion and a new desire. And the moment that you do that, things will begin to change. And so John continues with the worthlessness of this world system. Look what it says in verse 17. And the world is passing away. And the lust, read craving, read desire, read motives. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, all of its cravings, motives, and desires. Remember, cravings, motives, lusts, and desires, even the good ones. Well, we want joy. Of course you do. We want peace. Of course you do. We want forgiveness. Of course you do. We want hope. Of course you do. I don't want to be afraid anymore. Of course you don't want to be afraid anymore. But I also don't want to have to trust Christ. Oh, then, then the chances are you're in big trouble. 
Because the world is constantly asking you to satisfy these things apart from the gospel, apart, apart from hope. John's description of what, it, of what it means to love this world covers cravings. And so he says the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you know what that means? In the most simple, simple explanation that I can possibly give. And the world is passing away. You know what that means. It means the world is dying. It is not eternal. It is temporal. It's not going to go on forever. It's going to come to a crashing halt. Satan's system is destined for ruin. Satan is the prince of a temporary kingdom. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. Jesus told us that heaven and earth is going to pass away. Paul hints at it again in 1 Corinthians 7.31. And those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. Everything that you have, everything that you see... Everything that you want is going to one day disappear. You already knew that. This is why the world can't permanently satisfy anyone. It was never supposed to. was never supposed to. So where have you placed your affection? Your hope? Your confidence? Where have you dropped your roots? Have you sunk them deep into this disturbed world? Remember what he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we're of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The world's going to be judged. Its ruler's going to be done away with. It's going to happen. John Stott, who was one of the great preachers in England and London, spoke about his visit to America. He wrote, quote, you know what your country is like. And by the way, he wrote this decades ago. Here's what he wrote. You know what your country is like. I'm a visitor. I wouldn't presume to speak about America. But I know what Great Britain is like. I know something about the growing dishonesty corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark at night, there's no sense blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If meat goes bad... There's no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, 
Where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the church? Unquote. I love that. It isn't what's going on out there. It's what's going on in here. And more importantly, what's going on inside of you. Look what John says at the end of that verse. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. But who does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? We can talk about general or we can talk about specific. Let's talk about general just for a moment. The ultimate will of God is that each and every person realize that they're a sinner in need of a savior. It's the will of God for people to turn from their sin and turn to the savior. It's the will of God that people receive Christ as their savior. It's the will of God that none perish, but all enter into a right relationship with God in Christ. It is the will of God that we know him and we love him and we experience that love. And then we experience a love for each other. Worldliness is anything that keeps you from loving the Lord, knowing his will, and living your life to the fullest that God had intended. That's the way I would put it. So where is the church? Isolated? Insulated? Vegetative? Is the church apathetic or indifferent or worse, apostate? We have contact with this world. So now we're back to our original question. How do we have contact without contamination. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? How do we have contact without contamination? The only thing that I think will keep us on track is again to do what the theme of this great book is. Walk in fellowship with the Lord Walk in fellowship with each other. Understand what the will of God is. Understand what the obstacles are. We'll never reach the world by being like the world. The only way that you're going to reach this world is by being salt and light. As John Stott just said, instead of cursing the darkness, you have to be the light. Instead of wailing and bemoaning that the world is falling apart, you need to be like Anne Graham Watts who says, 
The world's not falling apart. The world is falling into place. And Graham Watts is really the preacher in the family. So let me ask you kind of a hard question. Some way along the way, did you manage to fall in love with this world? Did you manage to fall in love with what you want or what you saw or what you thought would satisfy you? Or have you fallen in love with the Lord? Do you want to know him and do you want to know his will? Have you discovered the joy of knowing him and then knowing his will? Because guess what? How many movies can you watch? How many games can you play? How many meals can you eat? How many conquests can you make? How many failed relationships do you think you'll be able to survive? How much money? How much fame? How much? And now we remember Jesus' words, don't we? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so John is going to invite us to ask an entirely different question. And that is, are you ready for a better world? You see, remember the Bible says, love not the world neither the things that are in this world, the world that stands in opposition to God, that hates God, that hates Christ, that hates the gospel, that hates the truth. But are you ready to participate in the world that's coming? A world where everyone loves the Lord and loves Jesus and loves the gospel and loves the truth and wants to see people Healed, forgiven, and reconciled. Well, how do we do that? Again, we resist the devil. We submit to God. By the way, you won't be able to resist the devil, and you won't be able to hate this world unless you're first willing to love the Lord and submit to him. You'll remember that Satan wanted Jesus to use his own powers to meet his own needs, to fulfill the will of God outside of what God revealed. Satan asked for worship that belonged only to God. Satan even dared Jesus to test the Father's word by jumping off the temple pinnacle. In all three cases, Jesus said, this is what the Bible has to say. Do you realize that the same spiritual weapons that were available to him are available to you? So, we have the ability. We can do what God wants us to do. Now, read it again. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. How in the world are you going to accomplish that? By loving the Lord 
and everything that the Lord has placed in our hearts for this present world and a world that's coming sooner than you might think. We're going to have communion now. And all I ask is that you just simply save the elements so we all have an opportunity to partake together. But let's, let's just pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. That, Lord, we can uh, know you and love you. And, Lord, when we think about the cravings of everything that we are apart from Christ, that our eyes see, the bloated, constant temptation to exaggerate ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would begin to care about the things that you care about. Lord, we know about the test of fellowship, relationship, growth, and now the test of affection. Lord, where are we going to place our affection? And again, Father, we pray that you would give us strength and courage and mercy to think carefully about what John has been telling us. Again, Lord, his warnings sometimes make us a little bit uncomfortable. But Lord, we know that that's not the purpose. It's so we'll grow up. And so, Father, again, prepare our hearts for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.